for choosing the podcast of LifePoint Church in Ozark, Missouri. LifePoint is a body of believers led by God's Spirit to engage in His redemptive mission in the world. We love Jesus and desire to serve Him by leading people to be real Christ followers in life together. We hope that this message will be a blessing and an encouragement for your life. If you would like more information about LifePoint Church, please visit us on the web at www.lifepointozark.com. Deuteronomy 8, we're in a series entitled Shaped for Glory Through Mission. We're, we're studying through the book of Deuteronomy, and we've come to chapter 8. Now, let me just give you some brief recap of where we are. We've talked about the four foundational pillars um, of, of our, having our life shaped by God for glory, and now we're in the midst of five uh, resolutions that help us understand how God brings us into our own spiritual uh, transformation, spiritual growth and maturity. And the first, um, the first resolution was just simply, God, shape my heart, shape my heart. The second resolution was shape my life. We talked about that for several weeks and what uh, Deuteronomy was teaching us throughout the uh, remainder of chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 7 last week, we talked about God shape my church. We talked about how God uses his people, plural, Uh, as the local body of Christ in the local church uh, to accomplish his mission in the world and what that means for us as individuals. And today, we move to the fourth resolution, which is God shape my mission. And so I want to begin, as I have each of these sermons, just with kind of giving you the bullseye, giving you the aim for where we're headed with this sermon. And the, the purpose of this sermon is simply to communicate this, that God shapes my mission through all circumstances of life to bring glory to himself through his people by his provision. So God shapes my mission through all circumstances of life to bring glory to himself through his people by his provision. And the resolution that accompanies this main idea is simply this, that I resolve by God's grace through Holy Spirit at work in me to shape my mission by God's purpose in the world to multiply his glory. Remember, resolutions do not articulate what we are doing for God, but they articulate and shape our understanding of what God is doing through us and subsequently how He is leading our life. So we are fully engaged in this work. And so let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 8. Just in terms of how the sermon's going to flow today, let me just give you some instruction there so you'll kind of know where we're tracking. I'm going to work throughout the chapter, and then at the end, I'm going to kind of bring the points of application. So in terms of your note sheets, you won't need those for a few minutes, and then we'll come back and pick those up. Uh, I think what you'll find today, I hope what you will find today, is the sermon is helpful, but it has some elements of being hard, too. And so I hope that at the end of the day, you have greater hope in Jesus and what He wants to do in your life and through your life. Deuteronomy chapter 8. Verse 1, let's go. The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do, that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. Now stop there for a moment because I want us to be mindful of where we are in this. 
Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt across the Red Sea and they came to this very threshold with, where which they stand today and they looked into the promised land. They heard God's promise and they said what? Sounds great. Don't think we're up for this. And so they turned because of their rebellion and spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness or in the desert. At the end of that roughly 40-year period of time, they returned to where they were before, and that's where we find the book of Deuteronomy being written. So they have a generation and a half or so of history that is a part of their people's lives. And so these people are very fresh uh, on their mind where they are and how they have been there before. And when Moses summarizes his words that he has given to them so far, he commands full obedience for them. This is a familiar theme to remind and to encourage the Israelites. I kind of like to think of Deuteronomy chapter 8 as like the bridge in a song. You know what the bridge does in a song? Like the the verses of a song like tell the story, right? So you would have a verse of, of Egyptian slavery and then you would have a verse in their life of God saving them and crossing the Red Sea. And you know, every season or every situation that God brought them through, you could write a verse of the song. And the chorus of the song is kind of what you sing at the end of each verse, you know. It's the, it's the theme to drive home each song. So in that chorus, you, you might say, you know, God saves, He is good, we can trust Him, let's obey, right? And so you have these verses that are being written, and you have the chorus that resonates throughout. So where does chapter 8 fall in this? Chapter 8's the bridge. You know what the bridge is in a song? The bridge is that one, sometimes two-line phrase that you sing between the chorus, excuse me, between the verses, let me keep my sides the same here, between the verses and the chorus that connect them together. It's kind of the overarching resonation. And what he's going to say In the bridge that ties all of this together is simply this. Remember God. Remember God. You see, it's interesting. So often in a song, the bridge is the line that's the most catchy. It's the reason you like the song to begin with. But it also reminds you of everything else that the song holds in it. And Deuteronomy 8 is that kind of a chapter in the book of Deuteronomy. It's a bridge that ties the story and the resonating theme of God's goodness and grace together with his people. And that's what Moses does. He summarizes by beginning with these words, be careful, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. You see, God's will, you ever want to know God's will? Here it is, is that his people experience his blessings that he promises and that he provides. No questions asked. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. That's God's will. And God commands obedience that we might experience the fullness of his riches poured out through his covenant blessing. And that's where we find ourselves. Let's move on in verse 2. Look at verse 2 through 6. And you shall remember the whole way that the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. 
And he humbled you and he let you hunger and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Your clothing did not wear out on you, and your foot did not swell these 40 years. Know then in your heart that as a man disciplines his son, the Lord your God disciplines you. So you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God by walking in his ways and by fearing him. Let's pause there for a moment. God led the Israelites into the wilderness to humble them through testing. And immediately the sermon gets hard (laughs) by the mere nature of the topic. You see, the Israelites did not believe God, but they chose to make their own way. And then their inability to provide for themselves became what is all too familiar for us, an exercise of training in humility. So often we don't see it when we walk into it, but once we get in it, we full well know how to identify it, right? When we begin to see the lack of our own ability and the greatness of our need to trust in God. And what the Bible tells us in Deuteronomy is that God tested them in order to humble them and reveal their hearts. You see, times of testing always reveal the true content of our heart, don't they? They show what's there. When life gets hard and our heart begins to tell us, hey, go do this, go do that, go try this, go try that. And and our yearnings and our desires, they lead us. We see where it is that our heart is not wholly devoted to the Lord. Why? Because we're being tested. And God says, I'm going to test you to humble you in order to reveal to you what is in your heart. God humbles the Israelites to teach them one thing. Look at verse 3. What is that one thing? That man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see, a life that is consumed with the pleasures and the provisions of this physical world are not what God intended when he created people in his image. God knew this. The point is he wanted his people to know this as well. You see, God's word, God's word is the source and the sustaining strength for all of life for the one who trusts in God. And God's provision in the wilderness came in ways It says that you weren't familiar. You didn't know these ways. As a matter of fact, your fathers didn't know these ways. He's saying to them simply this, that these provisions came in ways that were not known to humanity. In other words, they were given against the natural order of nature and the way things are established in the world. The food that sustained them, which we've come to know as manna, was unknown to them. They didn't know what man. It wasn't just bread. It was bread that was uniquely placed there for a purpose. And it was unknown to them. And it was, no one knew what it was. Why? Because God created it for that reason. The fact that their clothes did not wear out was anything but normal. I'm not talking about walking into your closet and going, I've got nothing to wear because you're tired of everything hanging in front of you. I'm talking more like when your wife throws that favorite t-shirt away because it's got all the holes in it and it's done. 
And you don't know it until you go looking for it and can't find it. Right? This isn't marriage counseling, and so I'm not going to linger there very long. You're closed in 40 years. I mean, I know, you know, clothes today aren't made the way they used to be. Their prices have still gone up, but like their quality seems to have greatly diminished. But not even these would last 40 years. The soles on your feet didn't wear out. Your feet didn't swell. Why? Because God was opposing the very created order of nature in order to provide for you to show you something Provisions in the desert reminded them that God was with his people, that he was providing for them even though circumstances were hard and even though they were undesirable. Moses tells the Israelites that God disciplined them as a father disciplines his son. Hear me, friends. God disciplines his children because he loves them as a faithful father. A faithful father. And he says in verse 2, he, he begins this whole section of verses by saying, remember the whole way that God leads. That's important for us to know as well. You see, God's people must know that his word is essential for life and not optional for us. And when they obey, his children that is, he is faithful to love them in discipline. You see, God's discipline or excuse me, God disciplines his people in order to produce obedience through worship. God never commands or intends his people to engage in what we know as ritual. In other words, adherence to actions without heart involvement. Rather, obedience to God are actions in accordance to his commands that grow from a heart that is full of his presence. I use one illustration to drive this point home, and that's the sermon of the prodigal son in the New Testament. It is true that the younger son disobeyed because his actions did not align with the commands of God's will and word for him, right? That's pretty easy. He said, give me all that I want, and he went. And the scriptures tell us explicitly, he spent his inheritance in worldly pleasures and selfish indulgence until he had nothing and he was in the pig's pen seeing that the pigs had better care taken of them than he did of him. And so what does he do? He repents. He gets up, hoping and trusting in the love of the Father, and he comes home. And the Father, the story as the story says, was watching for him. The the. The, uh, uh, the grammar there, the linguistic visual image that it paints is simply a father who is longing, wanting the son to come home. And when the son returns, what does he do? He throws a party. I mean, he kills the fattened calf. He throws a party like they had never partied before. And as the son is high-fiving everybody and being welcomed home, and they're partying because the son who was once lost has now come home and is saved, he walks into the house, and who stands at the door refusing to go in? The older brother. The son who did everything right, but with a heart that was empty. He's the only one that missed the party, as far as we can tell from the scriptures. God never intended that your obedience 
would be absent of his presence in you, but rather fueled through it. And how important that is for us in understanding the whole way that God leads. He leads by worship through obedience. He enables our obedience. How? By salvation for his people. The Israelites were where they were because God put them there, right? He's the one that brought them out of Egypt. God saves us that he might enable our obedience. He informs our obedience by speaking his commands. The very way we've distinguished God against all the false gods of the world to this point in Deuteronomy is one simple way that he speaks though he has no form he is a God who speaks when all the other lesser little gods little g have forms but cannot speak and he speaks in order to inform our obedience through his commands he empowers He energizes, he inspires. These are the words that the New Testament uses to help us understand how our obedience is to come about. How does he do it? By his presence. The Spirit of God that is inhabiting us and living within us empowers us. It it energizes us and inspires us that we might obey in faith. You see, he disciplines disobedience in order to humble us that we might trust him more. And he honors obedience obedience with his blessing that we might multiply his glory more and more and so God receives glory in increasing measure when worshiped through returned blessing and obedience that's the whole way that God leads his people Wilderness lessons humble God's people to know his love for them and to lead them to trust and to obey his word. And might I just transition to the next segment when I say, even when blessings abound. Go with me to verse 7. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks of water. Now, That may not mean a lot to us, but people who've just spent 40 years in the desert who wondered where their next cup of water was coming from, that means a lot. Of fountains and springs flowing out in the valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley, of vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive trees and honey, a land in which you will eat bread without scarcity, in which you will lack nothing, a land whose stones are iron and out of whose hills you can dig copper. And you shall eat and be full, and you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land he has given to you. You see, God's discipline is never to destroy His children, but to teach, to train, and to prepare them. And Moses reminds the people that even though the wilderness was hard, God's plan for them was a land of overflowing blessing and abundance. Every descriptor that he uses in verses 7 through 10 is one of goodness, it's one of pleasure, it's one of abundance, and it's one of full provision. God wants his people to know that what he provides is immeasurably great and satisfying for them. And so God intends that his children's full satisfaction in his provision would become the source for them to live as a blessing unto him in the land. 
And that's what he is leading them to understand. Let's continue in verse 11. And so what does he say? He says, take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today. Lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do you good in the end. You see, Moses teaches that obeying God is determined by remembering God in the wilderness, but also in blessing. Obeying God is determined by remembering God, both in times of wilderness. And might I just say that 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 term is a literal reference to what's taking place in the book of Deuteronomy with the Israelites. But can we also acknowledge that it's also a term that we so often label seasons of our own life where we struggle with God. Seasons of our life where God's provisions maybe don't satisfy us completely. Seasons of our life where we wonder if God is really with us, if God is really for us, if God is providing for us. And in the same way, the promised land and the blessing that it held refers for us those seasons of our life when God is rich to us, when we are experiencing in a measure that is sufficient and satisfying for us. And even abounding to us. And so when we think about this. He is saying to us that we should be careful to do. Because it depends on this. That we take care lest we forget. In other words we remember God. That's how he qualifies. Verse 1 be careful to do. Verse 11 take care lest you forget. He reminded them of what life was like when they forgot God. And when they lived in the wilderness. You see, tests prove hard because they humble us. I think we pray for humility, and in a moment I'll talk about contentment. In the same way we pray for patience, right? We don't. Right? But when it comes, the real value that it brings for our life. You see, forgetting God means that blessings have the same effect on the heart that is not fully devoted to God. Same effect that the wilderness would have if we don't remember Him. Obeying God always holds His guaranteed blessing. That is a biblical truth. That is an unshakable foundation. I'm going to repeat it. Obeying God always holds His guaranteed blessing. Now blessings come in many different forms and my point here is not to unpack what a blessing is or could be but listen to the counter statement contrasting that one. Experiencing God's blessing 
is no guarantee of obedience. And that's what Moses is telling the people here. So often we think in this way, do we not? We believe the reverse of this, that if we'll just, if God will just bless our life, then we'll obey Him. If God will just do this for me, just do this one thing, man, I'll obey you. We even make, we even make contracts with God, don't we? But you see, the problem with contracts with God that say, God, if you'll do this, if you'll bless me in this way, then I'll do this for you. The problem is it tacks that on to his covenant. And blessing is already promised in his covenant. It doesn't need an amendment, an addendum, a contract to attach on to his covenant. But we think in those manners. And what Moses is saying to us is this. Blessing will no more guarantee obedience than wilderness will guarantee disobedience. Blessing is as much of a test as wilderness, for it reveals the heart and the one that truly rules there. Satisfaction has a way of producing, has a way of cultivating, has a way of breeding forgetfulness, does it not? When the heart is not fully devoted to God and you forget all that He has done, blessing, it becomes like a wilderness. When we get so full of all that we have in this world, we can easily forget how we got it. We can forget who gave it to us and we can forget why it was given to us. That's what Moses is warning the people. And here's how he concludes, verse 17. Beware lest you say in your heart, My power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is He who gives you power to get wealth, that He may confirm His covenant that He swore to your fathers as it is this day. And if you forget the Lord your God and go after other gods and serve them and worship them, I solemnly warn you today that you shall surely perish. Like the nations that the Lord makes to perish before you, so shall you perish, because you would not obey the voice of the Lord your God. Moses warns the people, beware that blessing doesn't cause you to think that you are the source of what you have and that you are the reason for which you have it. God is the one who provides. God is the purpose for which we have what we have. And God is the source that gives the means by which we are able to get what we have. God confirms His covenant in all these ways as our full source of life. We need to know that God is the one who tests the heart. And all that He gives is also a test for our heart too. Blessing is as much a test of the heart as any trial or wilderness-like experience. Finally, any who live in unbelief, he concludes in this way, will also suffer the destruction of unbelief. God doesn't say this to create fear in us, but to make sure the fears that are already within us are properly directed only in Him. You see, fear is not only a strong motivator, but it's also a great reminder, is it not? That's why I don't ride roller coasters. I've ridden one one time. And every time I'm faced with another, I remember. 
not only a strong motivator, it's a good reminder. And friends, I want to say this because this is what Moses is driving home to the people. Faith is nothing if it does not produce obedience. And the obedience that springs forth from his presence. God is worthy of your faith because in times of testing through the wilderness, as well as seasons of great abundance and plenty, he remains faithful. God has proven himself able and faithful time and time again. God didn't send manna in the wilderness to only provide food, but rather to show his people that his promise was to provide all that they needed. Everything God does for his people in the Old Testament holds an immediate value that points to the ultimate truth of what he is saying. Manna showed that most of all, all that they needed was not only a worldly provision. What people needed most was not just bread, but the bread of life, not just bread in the desert. What the people needed most was not just a drink of water, but living water, as Jesus tells the woman at the well, from which if you drink, you shall never thirst again. And that's what he is saying when he says, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds forth from the mouth of God. Jesus reveals how God's word sustains his people by faith and obedience. You see, through great trial and testing in the wilderness, it was God's word that sustained Jesus. As a matter of fact, his strength came from this very verse in Deuteronomy 8.3. When Satan comes to him at the end of 40 days in the wilderness, he says to him, you can turn this stone to bread. And he appeals to the godness of see 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 satan knows that jesus is god there's no question in his mind and he appeals to him as god and says you can turn this stone into bread if you want to and satan also knows that jesus was fully man because he knew that at the end of 40 days he was hungry and jesus said do not put god to the Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. You see, Jesus didn't quote Deuteronomy 8.3 because it was just the right response and he's Jesus. That's an easy way for us to offer the Sunday school answer, right? He quoted it because he was living it. The greatest hour of need in his life to that point in his life. He was leaning on nothing other than the Father for all of his strength, for all of his provision. And he knew that even though the temptations were within his reach, they would not provide what they promised if he indulged. And so he sets a great example for us. Jesus conquers Satan's greatest temptations and he conquers his strongest temptations in life by leaning into God by trusting in his word. But friends, Jesus does so much more than just set a right example for us. Jesus is so much more than just a good example or the best example. Jesus not only conquered Satan's temptation in the wilderness, but he destroyed all of Satan's power and authority on the cross. You see, what he does for us is not only exemplified in front of us through his life on earth, but is accomplished, it's completed 
Manna pointed to Jesus as the bread of life that God gives to satisfy our eternal hunger. And Moses was teaching the people that God's provision, and what did he say about the manna? It's not like it was familiar to him. You, you've never seen anything like this. Your fathers have never seen anything like this because all of humanity has never seen anything like this. Why? Because what I'm doing for you is nothing like anything that can be done by anyone else. The source from which I bring water is not the source that you will ever find water in this world, but I will bring it in such a way that you'll not hardly be able to believe it were it not right in front of your eyes. Why? Because I'm doing something to show you what I'm ultimately doing for you. The clothing that does not wear out, it points to Jesus. He, Isaiah 65 tells us that He clothes us with salvation. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that that clothing is His righteousness. That he places upon us. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see all your infractions against his holiness. He doesn't see all of your sinfulness and your missing of the target of his perfect plan for your life. But rather he sees Christ. And he sees you clothed in the righteousness that is placed upon you. He loves you because he saved you. And Jesus is the word of God that saves and by which God's people live. He is the living word of God. John 1.14 says that the word of God became flesh and made his dwelling among us. So when when we see that, 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 that we live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God, it is the full provision of God by which not only are we saved, but by which the very sustaining source of strength for our life today flows. This is the way that God leads. By taking all the things of this world and of this life and pointing to Him who is our life, Jesus Christ. You see, shape my mission is a prayer that we would look only to Jesus in all of life for our life that we would lean into him alone proverbs 3 5 and 6 says do not uh, trust in the lord with all your heart and do not lean upon your own understanding in all your ways acknowledge him and he shall direct your path and that word for trust there is a word that just means press apply pressure push yourself into christ that he would be the only place that you would turn for all of life and everything that we get in this life should always point us to the one who is our life. At the age of 24, Kristen was 22. She just graduated college. I'd been out a little over a year and serving as a student pastor at a church in southwest Arkansas. And we, uh, we packed up the truck and the car and we, we moved to, to Fort Worth, Texas. You can kind of hear all the Beverly Hillbillies in that story, can't you? Um, except for we, we weren't loading up because we'd found oil. We were moving out to Texas uh, to a another country we moved out there we didn't have any family in Fort Worth we didn't know anybody we just knew that God had called us to God had called us to seminary man if we're gonna save the world we got to go to seminary and I knew that that was against God's natural flow of order for all created humanity because just graduating college was like a miracle for me let alone graduating high school as well 
So going to graduate school had nothing to do with the natural order of man. It was God himself. We get out there and um, we realize that love, though we were living on it, didn't pay the bills, it didn't keep the lights on, it didn't do any of that kind of thing. So we had to get jobs. Kristen was a teacher and so she started applying and, and I was a minister and there were, you know, so I was just looking for anything, ended up finding a, I was so valued as a minister when I first moved out there that I found a landscaping job uh, where I could plant trees and I ended up just digging big holes in all of Fort Worth so the guy that hired me could plant trees. I said, can I plant the trees and let you dig the holes? But it didn't work that way. And I quickly learned that minimum wage was not what I wanted at that time. I Not even quite $6 an hour, I don't think. And I realized that was a while ago, but it wasn't that long ago. I did that for about three, three months. I started seminary and was taking classes and going to class and working throughout the day. And, and um, we, we had been put in contact with the church before we moved out there that we had some mutual family friends at or friends of our family who had family in the church, and they were looking for a student pastor. And I knew, I want you to understand, I'm not blaming anybody in this story. I knew when I resigned that church to go to seminary that God was calling me out of student ministry and into the pastorate. I, I knew that. I mean, it was as clear as anything can be clear in life. But when I got out there and started digging holes in Fort Worth, things became a little cloudy, you know what I'm saying? And they called me, they interviewed me three different times, once in person and twice on the phone, and every time I said, no, I'm not supposed to do this. I know I'm not supposed to do this. I need to say no to you and do something else because this is not what I'm supposed to be doing. And I, no, nothing inherent within them. They called me about three and a half months in, late October, and they said, would you consider one more time sitting down and just talk, just, just talk to us? And so two men came over to my house one night and sat and talked to Kristen and I. And by the end of the night, I was sore from digging holes. And I said, I'll do it. At that moment, I knew, I knew in my mind, knew in my heart, I should not be doing this. But I thought, man, God, they've come back to me three times now. I've talked to them four times. Maybe I'm just missing something here. So I'm going to do this. That began what I, I would not try to overstate, but try to help you understand the worst eight months of our life. Surely the worst eight months of ministry that we've ever experienced in over 25 years of ministry. I went in, we started leading the students, we were seeing some fruit among students, and, and things were going well, we had our normal problems as any church would, but you know, just trying to figure it out, trying to get involved, and in very quick manner, before the end of the year, Things started happening. I just I didn't have any, didn't have any explanation for problems that were coming up. So where is this coming from? I don't even know what this is all about. And it all came to a head in about February of the next year when I got called into a meeting and I walked into a room blind, didn't know what was going on, and and they just began to blame and accuse us. But hear me, and those of you who know us personally well, you'll find a little bit of humor in this. They didn't accuse me as much as they accused my wife. <laughs> if I want to know somebody is wrong, when they find the worst in our home and they land on my wife, <laughs> it's guaranteed they're wrong. I mean, that's just, you know, it's just guaranteed. Uh, she's got nothing on me in the wrong category, you know. The gloves came off. And, and we were sinned against. 
And I'm, my wife, she didn't say anything through it. But I'm sure that I did and said some things that I shouldn't have said. I fulfilled my obligations for the next month and a half or so. And I told them, I'm done with you. I'm finished. And my words to them were also my prayer to God. I'm done with you, and I'm done with ministry. Now, I wasn't done with being a Christian, but I was done with serving God in ministry. And so we left that church right at the eight-month mark, angry, bitter, and the only reason we stayed doing what we were doing is because I'd already entered my second semester of seminary. And we went to a friend's church who was on staff. It was a great church. It was a church that God was so formative in our life in, taught us so many things. And we sat, and there we sat for six months. And I am sure I had just like gas fumes coming off of me. If you were anywhere near me, you know, just from the heat of anger coming off of me. I was mad at God. I was mad at people I didn't know. Why? For one reason, because I had been woefully disappointed I don't need to belabor the point and tell you all that God taught me in that season. But I will tell you this. Kristen and I learned at that moment. We didn't understand the full implications of it. But we learned through that experience that ministry was never going to only be a job for us. But rather a way of life and following God. Many lessons actually came to us in that time. But this is the one that continued, and, and I'll give you the end of the story. Obviously, you know where I am today. So about four months in, I began to cool off, if you will, and began to let God work and, and let him speak to us. And I was finishing that semester of seminary, and so I simply said, okay, God, if this is what you want me to do, then I'm going to do it. And I dove in, and I started taking 16 hours a semester. I took 11 in the summer. I was working anywhere from 30 to 60 hours a week. Depending on the time of year, because in Texas, like the sun doesn't set in the summer, so you can just work forever. And that's all we did. Served in the church, went to school, and worked. Got out in right at three years and graduated. And in the last, what would really be about a year and 18, 20 months, the last half of our seminary education, what I learned was really not in the classroom. What I learned was more in home, in the heart, and what God was doing. And how he used that season to teach us how to follow him. Not because of what we could do for him. And I'm sure there was a lot of that in me going to seminary. But I can promise you, coming out of seminary, there was just one desire to let him use my life however he chose to use it for his glory. You see... That's what Deuteronomy 8 is all about. That's what remember God is all about. When times are hard, you need to know God has not forgotten you. He has not forsaken you. When life is good, He is still the source of all that is good. And you are not. You need to remember, remember Him because He is the only one. Who saves? Last week in the sermon, we said simply this that the essence of mission, what you know, we talk about mission being activity and trips and all these other things, and those aren't wrong, but they're not the fullest expression of mission. That the essence of mission is following God where He leads to receive what He provides and to live to honor Him first. 
in every way. We learn that just in the, in the fullness of it in Deuteronomy. Because God leads his people in mission because he is a God of mission. And so when we come to this sermon where we pray, God, shape my heart, and God, shape my life, and God, shape my church, the people of God through whom I'm seeking to live in life together with, we we pray, God, shape my mission. This means that God brings glory by giving purpose to my life through all circumstances of my life. That God shapes our mission, not just to accomplish His work in the world, but to reveal His purpose for us in life by bringing glory through us and bringing good to us in this life. Mission means that we live in God's purpose for our life. The very reason that He created us in His image And saves us by His grace. God gives meaning to all of life. God leads and sustains in the hard times for our good. That's so easy to see in the wilderness. Not as easy to remember. And might I just, let me just throw a note in here on this. Be careful not to interpret all hard times the same way as God's doing. I mean, you look at this passage, you go, okay, God tested them through the wilderness, so all wilderness kind of times in my life must be God's doing. That's not true. Sometimes they come because of our own sin and where it leads us. That's what the wilderness was about. And God came and he used that to test them. Sometimes they come because other people sinned and they inflict that sin upon us and hurt us through that. Sometimes wilderness seasons may arise because the world is a sin-sick, sin-cursed way. And it feels as though God is not present. And that season of our life is a result of sin and its presence in the world. And I would simply say to you that, that God is not responsible for all of these ways. But God will not allow any of them to be used for anything other than good if you will trust Him. God always brings good from them, those situations in life, for those who love him and humbly trust in him. This is why, this is why he disciplines us to humble us that we might trust him. Listen, if at the first time they came to the promised land and they said, we're not going, and God said, okay, go back to the wilderness, and then they said, no, we will go, and they went in and they got their posteriors handed to them in war, and people's lives died because they sinned, if God had said, okay, just go on in, and he'd given them all the blessing the blessing would have been a greater curse than the wilderness and some of you know that God's given you your every desire and you've forgotten him see God doesn't just get us through hard times he doesn't just bring us through them to go whoo forget about that now let's move on But God brings glory through tests and through trials by redeeming them to bring meaning and purpose from them. Friends, that's what I want to say to you. Your past baggage, God wants to redeem it. And while he may not make it all as you would foresee it to have been had it just lived itself out, he will bring glory to himself through your life as he brings meaning and purpose from 
every situation and circumstance in your life. That's the power of a God who saves to the uttermost and redeems. He brings glory through blessing. God leads and and sustains in good times. How? By bestowing his blessing upon his people. And he blesses his people to show that he consumes and he rules our heart. And that the things that he blesses us with are not what is ruling our heart. And so God brings glory through blessing by investing what he gives to multiply his mission and purpose in the world. And so we talk about stewardship a lot. You see, sometimes God tests us to show us what is really consuming our heart that we might turn back to him. It's not that he needs to know. He knows he's revealing that to us. Sometimes God allows us to experience trials that may be caused by our sin, by someone else's, or by the reality of sin in the world. And both of these reveal what's what's in our heart and what's filling it. At times to show our faith and at other times to only reveal our disobedience. You see, God doesn't only test us in times of disobedience to reveal the disobedience of our heart. But sometimes, as we see even with the whole book of Job, God allows us to be tested and test us to reveal our heart to show a heart of faithfulness. Wait a minute. How can God bless us in testing? It's the very will of God that he brings, friends. But God never stops loving us. God brings good to us and for us as we seek his glory. You see, God shapes my mission so that all of life by faith in Jesus increases my knowledge and my understanding of who he is. It deepens my love and my affection for him. And it strengthens my will and my volition to follow Jesus in all of life. So faith in Jesus... And God shaping our mission brings strength to follow Jesus in all of life. People forsake mission because it's hard. Man, God, I don't think I like this. People forsake mission because it's messy. Man, I'm confused. I mean, there's just so much going on right now. I don't have a clue where to even put my next step. People forsake mission because it's humbling. And again, I go back to that. Nobody really prays, God humble me. (laughs) Right? It might be prayed just a little bit more than patience, that through which God brings humility. (laughs) But seasons and situations that seem like a wilderness are as much a display of God's love for us as his blessing is to us. Do you know that? Do you believe that? And the lessons we learn in the wilderness make us wiser and stronger in God's grace there are the lessons God uses these are the lessons God uses to refine our heart in worship and to mature our life in obedience and so when we pray God shape my mission we're asking him God refine this heart to be burning purely for you in worship and mature this life to serve you and you alone in it you see when you run away from that which God uses to refine your heart for worship mission When you refuse and reject his saving work in you, you put your trust in false idols that are all around you. And it is in mission where we learn what rules our heart and how joyfully life truly is when Jesus is the one who rules our heart. We learn that in mission. And without mission, we can't learn that. 
And when we view all of life by mission, our purpose for life, God takes our hard times of the past and he brings good to us by his redeeming work through them. Let let me pose a question to help drive that point home a little more. If you don't trust that God will work to redeem your wilderness, how would you ever conclude that you might trust him in the goodness of his blessedness? If he's not powerful to overcome what's wrong in your life, Whatever good he brings isn't going to be enough to sustain your life. But if he is powerful enough to overcome the wilderness, to redeem it, the good he gives is sufficient to sustain us. And so Shape My Mission is a resolution in prayer for God to use all of my life as a resounding glory unto him. Now I'm going to complete the sermon today through three encouragements. These aren't going to take long, but they're important for us. You've already heard them. The first one is this. Remember God. That's the bridge. That's the bridge. It's the first thing we remember about the song. You know, it catches us. And it connects the story of what God's doing with the reason for why he's doing it. It just brings it all. Remember God. These first chapters of Deuteronomy resound this simple directive for us to remember God. God is not showing the propensity of our heart to disobey in order that he might know, but rather that we might know. He's showing us. He shows us so that in hard times we will humble ourselves but not be crushed, and in good times we will not forget and walk away. And what is learned in hard times still applies when living in blessing. That we need God at all times, that he alone is our life. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Let me just give you a principle that will help you in remembering God. That the more we remember and learn to trust God during times of tests and trials, the more likely we will be to bless God through the abundance of His good to us. You say, I can't hang on for the tests and trials. I've got to let go and hope that God will bless me one day and that will bring me back into obedience. Remember what we said, friends. Remember what we said. Blessings do not guarantee obedience. And if you will not trust Him in the hard times, you will not worship Him in the good. What reminds you to remember God? Who in your life reminds you to remember God? Might I encourage you today To not make remembering God a gamble. But make remembering God. Make remembering the gospel. An unescapable reality in your life. By the voices. By the people. By the practices within which you engage in your life. By the rhythms. And even by the places in which you put yourself. Don't make remembering God a gamble. Make remembering God something you can't get away from. Because of what your life is surrounded by. Make sure there are people who will faithfully speak to you the word of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ if they see even one ounce of your energy beginning to go away. Let your own words convict you if your life is not being lived in accordance to what your verb or your words are saying. Let the very practices of your life bring conviction to you. 
That if you're just going through ritual and going through the motions of life and you sense that God's not in all of this, then ask yourself, why is He not? Because He has not commanded from you rituals that are absent of the heart, but rituals that flow from a heart that is full of Him. Is all of your life pointing you to remember God? The second encouragement I would give you is this. Learn contentment. Learn contentment. Paul was a man in the New Testament who had experienced both ends of the spectrum of abundance and of provision, of testing and of trials. He testifies to what it means when God shapes our mission. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. Some very familiar verses. I want you to listen to them. Here's what Paul says. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. Wilderness blessing. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, wilderness, and abundance and need, blessing. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Well, we've heard that verse so many times, haven't we? Might I just encourage you in this way as you're learning contentment? Philippians 4.13 reminds us not that we can accomplish what we want, desire, or strive for in life. But Philippians 4.13 reminds us that when we follow Jesus by faith, God accomplishes through our life what He wants for our life and in our life. That's what Philippians 4.13 is all about. This is the prayer of God, shape my mission. Paul goes on to instruct a young Timothy in 1 Timothy 6.6 when he said, Godliness with contentment is great gain, Timothy. It's great gain. Hebrews also commands, and be content with what you have. You see, we learn contentment where God has placed us in life as we learn contentment by trusting in Jesus. And the prayer of this resolution number four that says, shape my mission becomes God. Make me satisfied with nothing but you by fully trusting in you while following you. So if I have nothing, you are enough. If I have everything, you are even more. That's what this prayer prays. Contentment means knowing the love and the joy and the peace of God regardless of our circumstances because Christ is filling us. The third encouragement that I give you today is this. Practice unceasing praise and glory. You see, it is true that whatever flows out of your mouth is because it's already filled your heart. But it is also equally true that the discipline of your mouth will quickly turn your heart to fill with joy and peace when your mouths begin to give praise and glory to God. You see, praise and thanksgiving make a powerful weapon to destroy any lingering dissatisfaction with God that might remain in you. And a heart that is full of God overflows in praise and glory. A heart that is full of sin and self is crushed under the weight of pity, of disobedience, of condemnation, of shame, of of all of the things that make life about me. Be careful to take care that your heart is being filled with the gospel regardless of whatever surrounds you in this life. As the worship team returns... Can I just pose a question to you? 
There are three places you may find yourself today. Place number one, the wilderness. It's the place life is hard. Provisions, though they may eke you by, do not seem to be plentiful. You cause yourself to question God at times, to ask of Him, why this? Why me? Why now? Sometimes the wilderness is created because of sin. Sometimes the wilderness is created simply because of faithfulness. God led you there. Jesus committed no sin before God led him into the wilderness. But God took him there anyway. Why? Because Hebrews tells us he would perfect him through suffering. Through suffering. Maybe you find yourself in the wilderness this morning. Maybe you find yourself in a place of great blessing this morning. You would say, Pastor, I, I, I live a blessed life. I have so much to be thankful for and I'm not perfect and my family's not perfect and life is not perfect. But when I look at the whole scope of life, man, it is good. It is good. God's blessing. He is so rich to us. And I'm so thankful for all that He's done. He just continues to pour Himself out. And then many of you are going to find yourself where Deuteronomy is written. In between the wilderness and the fullness of His blessing. And you're wondering which way your life will go. And might I say to you, the bridge that God is wanting us to sing today says it doesn't matter which way life goes. God is good. It doesn't matter which way life goes. God will be with you. It doesn't matter which way life goes. God will sustain you. Will you sing the bridge with us this morning? Just remember God. Remember God. He's not forgotten you. He's not forsaken you. He will not if you will trust Him. Your life will not be defined nor determined by the circumstances or the situations that surround it, but rather will be identified by the one Savior who consumes it. That's Jesus. But the children of Israel failed to perfect in the wilderness. Jesus perfected in His 40 days. And he did it for you. So that when he walked out, he could walk to a cross. And he could die to give you all that God intends for you to have. Will you receive it today by faith? Let me pray and then we'll respond to the Lord. Jesus, we know that you suffered perfectly for us. That you might be able to bring to us all that God intended for us. And we confess that we don't always understand why. We don't always understand how. But give us the faith to trust in the who. And that is you, Lord Jesus. That is you. Friend, if you need to respond to the Lord today, I just want to encourage you to trust in Him. Don't make a to-do list of what you need to do to please Him. Just release your heart to trust Him in every way.
Let's stand together and sing as we respond to the Lord.